Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about parenting and child development. We're going to talk about some clinical roadblocks that interfere with healthy development right from the start. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please email me at contact at drbconnections.com. Or if you want to know more about me, go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. Now, let's get started. All right, so we're talking about parenting and child development. So let's talk about some of the clinical roadblocks that interfere with healthy development right from the start. Here's the problem. What do you do if you're a pediatrician and a teenager brings an infant or toddler to their pediatric appointment as the parent? So you have a teen parent bringing a baby or a toddler or child to a ped appointment, but the parent is really still a child as well. And it's clear, clear that the mama needs help, but she doesn't have access to Medi-Cal or medical insurance or mental health care. This situation was shared to me this week with a friend of mine who's a pediatrician. I've shared about him before. He's really, you know, family, but I just wanted to, um, you know, we've been consulting back and forth around clinical observations that he's experiencing now that he's starting to do the ACEs screening in his office and just really how that's opening up his practice and his mind and looking at the kids and, and parents who come into his office for care. So here's the story. Mom is 16 and she has a toddler. Her housing is unstable. She has the baby and they're staying with friends for now. The mom's dad So the teenager's dad actually lives out of town and won't sign the paperwork that the teen mom needs in order to get Medi-Cal insurance herself. So the only one who has access to care is the baby, who's a toddler now. I know there's ways around this, but think about being 15, 16, 17 years old in this situation. It's just so complicated to navigate your way through systems, and it can be really, really scary. I mean, terrifying. So managing your life at 15 is complex. Add a baby to the mix, it's, you know, it's just not not cool. It's super hard. So we know this. The best way to fuel healthy development is providing care and support to parents, parents of all ages. Here's what we have. We have a teen mom of a toddler. She can't get Medi-Cal for herself, so the pediatrician treats the baby But imagine what would happen if we made it possible and easy for this young parent to get 
her own care physically and emotionally without needing her parents' permission if that parent is inaccessible. Maybe maybe the mom could access care for herself in the pediatrician's office because she too is a pediatrician potential client or patient. So babies are connected in utero by the umbilical cord. You know, that's how they stay alive. But after birth, there's still this invisible connection that can suck the life out of a mom when her baby is in trouble. And what I mean by trouble is when the baby is sick, when she's worried about the baby's development, all the things that we panic about as a parent when we worry about our child. I know this without question because I'm a mama. And now I'm a BB, which I coined uh, a wise old mama or older mama, um, also known as maybe a grandma or something. So I can empathize with every mama trying to find her way without enough parenting information or support. It's crazy. it's, It's so hard to be a parent and we have so little information and support accessible to young parents especially. So here's a personal story. Well, kind of a personal story. What we know about infants are that they only do as well as their mama. Remember, they've been carried in the womb for 10 months as one with the mama. Then they enter the world after birth immature and incapable of communicating or regulating without the mama. And the infant and mama really need to be cared for during the first three years of life as a unit, not as individuals, if possible. And we need to make a real effort at this. We need to look at the baby and the mom as a unit. We have to stop taking babies from their lifeline, which is the mama. The best prediction for an infant's well-being is the well-being of the mama or the family and the parents. So we've done this sort of, oh, you're on drugs, oh, you're whatever, a variety of blame reasons because it's easier in in our system to take a baby and place it in foster care than it is to actually go back and treat the trauma that potentially the mom had and help her heal so she can actually be the best parent for the baby. However, that's the best thing that we could do because the mom is the most open to change and growth and healing when she actually becomes a parent, especially for the first time. In the best of circumstances, Mom delivers a baby and feels hot-wired for this baby. Anyone who's had a baby, you know, you're just, it's almost like all your nerve endings are just raw because you're so just on fire in love with your new baby. It's the most powerful time for a mama to make changes, not for herself, but to make changes so her child, her baby, has a better life. Parents always say this. They always say, think about it. I want my child to have a better life than I did. Without help, we quickly realize how hard parenting is and 
it's really difficult to do anything differently than their mother or their parents did because so many systems work against science. We have science today. We know how we can look at the brain imaging pictures of what a nurturing environment does to the brain, and yet we're still battling removing children from their connected parent. So in certain circumstances, I totally get it. it it's just not an option. We have to do it. But in a lot of circumstances, that's not the case. We can leave and leave babies with their mamas and care for them as a unit. And that makes so much more sense from a scientific side in terms of neurodevelopment, child development, and growth and development. So if when we take a baby from a parent, the spiraling begins. All right, so let's go back to the pediatrician's office. My friend, the doc, can see that clearly this mama, this teen mama, has adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, which put this baby at risk, but what can he do? You know, he's not the parent, he's not the doc for the parent, and he knows that the baby is at risk, but what are his options? His options are call CPS, but how really is that going to help? As the doc realizes that his hands are tied by systemic medical and social services bureaucracies, he talks to the young mom and suggests she go to social services to get help directly. And I know this from a, being a clinician myself. Like when I had people in my office we would come down to the point where I either needed to report to CPS or they needed to report. Rather than waiting for them to leave, it's so much more honest to help them make that decision themselves and to report on themselves. The system is kinder to them and it really opens the door to making the first steps to healing in that sort of a situation. The same thing goes for if somebody is feeling like they want to harm themselves or somebody else. You know, allowing somebody to acknowledge that and then report that for themselves is so much more powerful than when we take that away from them by reporting on them. So this teen is scared to death to go to social services because she's afraid they're going to take away the baby. Doc says if he calls, that's more likely to happen because... If she reports to herself, then they're going to be more likely to want to help her. Plus, she's part of the system that is in need of help because she's also a minor. Like I said, this is true with from when I was in private practice that when I could, and I think I always did, I don't ever remember calling CPS on anybody without them being with, like they called themselves in my office. So... What is, what's the solution to this? What do we do when we have teens with babies, teen mamas who don't have care themselves, trying to take care of babies, and don't have a support system? What is the solution for that? And how in the world can this be optimistic or lead to anything resilient? Well, 
I had to think hard on this one. We're in a cultural transition for sure, but we're also at the beginning of this cultural transition. So a lot of different things are happening. And so things are very messy and that's okay because the fact that we're doing something, remember, is optimistic. Activism is optimism. So we have to start somewhere. So we're bringing the MDs, the medical doctors, the pediatricians into the mix and educating them about the social determinants of health that come from early trauma and cultural disparity. So we have to bring the other half on board, bring them onto the boat with us in order to manage and learn about the emotional, social emotional health and its impact on physical health and long-term consequences of not addressing trauma. So there are many people talking and learning about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, I'm gonna keep saying it, and trying to find ways to incorporate this info into making medicine more personal. Now, clinicians don't necessarily, docs don't necessarily want to make medicine more personal, which I understand. They didn't go into medicine to become psychiatrists or psychologists. However, this is where the science has led us. Patients are totally on board. And we know this from the Kaiser Permanente and the CDC studies around the ACEs, uh, the ACEs research. The gap we need to bridge is with clinicians. There have been no complaints between from patients who have said, "Hey, I like this is really intrusive. I don't want you asking me questions about my, you know, personal traumas." No, patients have been very forthcoming with their doctors. It's really the doctors who are having to make the shift to understanding the emotional side of trauma as their business in terms of treating physical health conditions. We have the hard job of tackling trauma because what we do know in California through research and the ACEs Aware Initiative in particular, that 62% of all Californians have at least one adverse child experience in their belt. So that's two-thirds of the people in our state. With that, 80% are more likely to have a second one if they have one. 17% of Californians, which is one-fifth of the population, have experienced four or more ACEs in their lifetime. That is the critical tipping point in terms of social determinants of health and how that is going to impact them long-term. We can really no longer afford to keep mental health and physical health or emotional health separate. Sometimes the bad news is the good news. So let me say that again. Sometimes the bad news that people have a lot of ACEs is actually the good news because we know this work is hard, but California has already invested millions of dollars to bring ACEs to the forefront of medicine. And this is awesome. Like this is the best news ever, especially when great news is few and far between. So what are some actionable steps that we can take with this particular information? 
Well, we can learn more about ACEs. I think I talked about that in the last one, but learn, learn, learn. Google adverse childhood experiences. Expect your medical provider to learn about ACEs too. It's not easy, but it's important to advocate for yourself, for your children, and your community for change. As a parent, young or older, learn new strategies for parenting from a child development perspective. Really what ACEs are teaching us in terms of parenting is we need to do more training and teaching and supporting young parents and just parents in general around parenting strategies and skills to raise social, emotionally healthy children. And that's a really hard thing to do too if you haven't been raised like that to then change your whole way of being as a parent or anything you know about parenting. Because when you're parenting and you get pushed up against a wall, you go to your lowest point of do what was done to me. And instead, we know that's not the that's not the best way to parent. We have to move away from corporal punishment. No hitting. This is hard for people, but when an adult hits a child, it says it says to the child, "I don't have control over this situation and I can't protect you." So, how in the world can anything a child does that upsets a parent be solved by an adult hitting a child. Even if it's just a spanking, you know, that's not considered physical abuse, it still doesn't send the message that we're really wanting to communicate, which is children act out because behavior has meaning. And when they act out, often it's because they're scared or they don't have control or they don't, you know, they're they're not sure of what they're supposed to be doing. So those are three things that we can immediately as a parent say to ourselves, what do I need to help this child figure out that they're protected by me because I'm the adult? If they need help figuring out what they need to do, I can share with them, you need to do this right now. That's a whole new way of looking at parenting. And we need to start working on that as well because we're not going to end trauma if we continue to respond to misbehavior with, I'm going to say spanking, but I'm then going to add abusive techniques in terms of trying to control behavior. I know it's scary to be a parent and rewarding, and most of us never thought we could love someone as much as we do. And the truth is we love our kids so much. That is why people spank them and hit them and try to make them do all the things they want them to do is because they're scared for them to quote unquote grow up and turn out to be a bad person. So in order to keep that from happening, we do things that don't make a lot of sense in order to keep them from becoming uh, something that we're scared of, that we don't want them to be. But it's really out of love. I tell you, I, I think I shared in a different episode, I've been watching Orange is the New Black, and there's a mom who's a prisoner who just speaks in the most unkind way to her children. One's out of jail and one's in jail. And the whole time, my brain is saying, she loves those kids so much and she just has no other mode. Like she's never experienced any other way to talk to her children 
And they clearly want her to be softer with them, but she can't do it. And then all that does is bring out from them the same kind of really harsh language and communication pattern. So it's it's difficult to make a change, but we once we decide and we learn how to do it, then we just do like we do anything else, take the first steps. But we do have to stop with the corporal punishment. I'm going to do a whole episode on that because I think that it's really critical and people are still bought into the idea that, you know, spanking is okay or spanking isn't harmful. So I want to go into the research on that in a, in a much deeper, more thoughtful way. But for now, start thinking about how we can move away from this part of parenting. We have better ways and we have to look at the long game through a developmental and an emotional lens. So when we look at children through a developmental lens, we say to ourselves, hey, you're two years old. What do we expect from a two-year-old? Do we expect you to share? No, two-year-olds don't share. So don't ask two-year-olds to share because it's not developmentally appropriate for a toddler to share. Now, is it appropriate for a five-year-old to share? Sure. So we can practice sharing and how that feels good to be kind to somebody else and let them have a turn with your toy or whatever. So looking through a developmental lens means finding out what is, what are the nuances of development. I'm actually getting ready to do a a series training called Take a Walk on the Child Side, which is learning about five stages of development from prenatal in utero all the way to age 21 in three-hour training sessions. So that'll probably be on my website in the next couple of weeks if you're interested or if your organization is interested. But then through the emotional lens as well, you know, People cry, and crying is good. That There's nothing wrong with people crying. It's a really cleansing, healthy, emotional outlet experience. But we don't want to make people cry without understanding where those tears are coming from and what the purpose behind those tears are. So that's the emotional lens. We want to talk through those tears with children as they're growing and changing. It's not easy to be a kid. And... You know, we're struggling as adults through this COVID-19 pandemic, virtual everything, and the world is really, you know, scary at the moment. So they're picking up, children are picking up on our depression, our anxiety, our uncertainty, and all of our feelings. Those are parts of co-regulation, and they're picking up on that. So we need to recognize our contribution to their behavior and then come together and communicate about that in ways that are healthy for them and healthy for us. It may not always go exactly the same way. That's okay. Look around you. Nobody's exactly the same. Even identical twins aren't exactly the same. So it's okay if it's not exactly the same and it's okay if it's not perfect. But the best thing that you can do is to bring it up to the surface and bring it into a conscious conversation. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye for now and I will be back next week. So hope you have a great evening and go leave a life print. I love you, bye-bye. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life friend.